as on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Philippians, this incredible letter that Paul wrote to his favorite church to talk about the subject of joy and how we can have joy in our lives. Last week, we looked at the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul paints this picture of what the church is really supposed to be like, what our lives are to be like, as the way he described it, esteem others higher than yourself. Make it your priority to lift other people up and to give of yourself to others. And the picture that he paints is one of, a, of mutual appreciation and understanding, one of getting together with others and supporting each other where everyone feels loved and accepted because everyone reaches out to others, looks for opportunities to care for others. And every one of us will agree, I think, boy, what a great world it would be if that's really how it worked. And yet, in life, it's difficult to do that because the truth is, I think I'm more important than you are. And, and I don't know if you're worth the effort for me to do what I do. And Paul, here, beginning with verse 5, draws the most profound example imaginable of how a life of service and dedication to others really works. And the example that he paints is the picture of Jesus Christ. And here in these next few verses, from verse 5 through verse 11 of Philippians chapter 2, is what I would probably argue is the most important passage of Scripture in the whole Bible. Certainly it's one of the top five. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's the most important one. Because he depicts... Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, who he was before time began, who he is now and will always will be, and the significance and the motivation for what he did when he incarnated, when he became a man, when he humbled himself to that level and, and died on the cross for us, and then the exaltation that happened flowing forth from that. And remember in the context, he's saying, check out Jesus and you will understand why it is that you ought to serve, why it is that you ought to put priority on other people, why they should matter to you, why you should care what happens to others. Beginning with verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. A, a more literal translation is, Be continually thinking of what Jesus was thinking. In other words, take on what it is that was going through his head and have that be what's going through your head in order for this to happen. And we'll discover what it was, but sometimes you look at Jesus and all that he did and you think, what was he thinking? Well, we know the Bible tells us what he was thinking, but Paul is calling them to it. And then he begins to explain the story of Jesus. And he says, who... Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Being in the form of God. When you see that, that Jesus was in the form of God, if you just take the English, you might think it meant like, yeah, he was a kind of God. He was sort of God. He was a God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. But if you read it in the original, the word there in the Greek for form is the word morphe. Now, we have other words, metamorphosis and things like that, that use this word. Now, we even have the word morph, which means to kind of 
change from one thing into another. But the word morphe means to, to exhibit the essence of someone's character or being or nature. And so he's talking about Jesus before he ever came to earth and saying everything that God is was in him. He is the very nature of God. It's another way of saying, hey, Jesus is as much God as you could ever be, and he was, always was God. He was never created because the Gospel of John tells us that everything that was ever created was created by him. He wasn't like half God, half man. He wasn't, you know, kind of flashing back and forth like the Incredible Hulk or something. He, he was everything that there is to God was in Jesus Christ before, long before the manger, long before Bethlehem, all the way back to the beginning of time. John said there in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And then it goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived with us. Jesus referred to this time when he was praying to the Father in John 17 when he was about to go to his death. And he said there in his, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, restore me to the glory that I had together with you before the world was ever formed. So this is a picture of here's who Jesus was. Now, there are a lot of people who would make Jesus less than God. That is a completely unbiblical concept. Jesus was totally God. Paul over in Colossians 2 said, In him, that is in Christ, dwells, exists, all the fullness, the Greek word there is pleroma, it means the total package, everything that there is to God dwells him in, in him in a bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. Now, do I understand how Jesus could be completely God, the Father can be completely God, the Holy Spirit is also completely God, and yet there's one God? Not completely. I don't understand that. But the Bible teaches it consistently, and I have to accept it if I'm going to be biblical. So we call that the trinity or the triunity of God. The fact that God is three persons in one being, in one morph in one essence. Neither one of them more or less God than the others. Now, again, I could take the rest of the year to try to explain it to you. Problem is, I don't understand it, so we'd be wasting our time. And even if I ever do get to the point where I think I get it, I could never explain it to people like you. So <laughs> I, I have to just accept this is good theology. The Bible teaches it. Jesus God, completely and totally God. Now, you know, when we, when we look at that and we reflect on that, the point in Paul drawing this conclusion and stating this so solidly is he wants to show us from whence Jesus stepped when he became one of us. How Jesus humbled himself, lowered himself to be on our level. The reason why this is important is that when we are called to give of ourselves to others, so often we don't want to do it because we don't think they are worth it. And the whole point of this passage is they are worth it. And the one who stepped down from heaven, 
the one who stepped down from all of the glory that's in heaven, did it willfully and then calls us to do it because he believes it's worth it. So being in the form of God, being in the morphe of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, I personally think that's a poor translation. The word that is translated robbery, it, it can mean robbery, robbing something, or it can mean hanging on to the thing that you robbed, like when you're running from a bank and you're clinging on to it. But the essence of the word means to hang on to something as though it is really valuable. And so many translations of the Bible render this, he didn't regard being equal with God something to be clung to or something to be grasped. Now, if it could also be translated robbery, but in the context, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. If you are going to go, well, forget it, it's King James and that's it for me, and I, then if it really does mean robbery, it would mean, look, he didn't steal or usurp his position. He was God forever. So if you, if you feel better, take that. But the way, I, the way I read it, the way I think it's a better rendering is to say he was God completely, and yet he didn't hang on to the fact that he was God and demand everyone to worship him. He was willing and secure enough in who he was that he didn't flash his God credentials and say, find somebody else to save those people. He was willing to do whatever it took regardless of his esteemed position. And that says a lot to us. So often we hang on to who we believe we are and what we are entitled to. But Paul is trying to say, remember who it is that we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus. He was completely God. And yet he didn't hang on to that as if it was something to be desperately clung to. He goes on to say, but he made himself of no reputation. The, the, a literal, a better translation of that, sorry if I'm making you feel like, what are you, changing the Bible now? You can check me out on this if you want. But the word there in the Greek is the word kenosis. And often this passage is called the kenosis passage. The word kenosis in the Greek means to empty, to pour out what's in something. And so by saying he was made of no reputation, it's saying that Jesus, as God, when he came to earth and became a man, he emptied himself, would be a much more literal translation here. Now, people have written books and started cults and everything else based on misunderstandings of what this emptying is, what kenosis really is involved in. We need to make it really clear, without going into deep theological treatise on this, Jesus did not let go of who he was by nature. He did not become less than God. He did not become not God anymore temporarily. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. And there are people who would say, well, he emptied himself of his divine attributes. And even that isn't completely accurate. Because... You can't be God and not have the attributes of God. But theologically, the way we express what this kenosis was, this emptying, is that he chose to submit himself to the leading of the Father, and he gave up the independent use of his divine attributes. That is, he still had those attributes, but he chose to limit his exercise 
of those attributes. Now, there are times when the Father would allow him to work a miracle, and his divinity was showing through, and you can see, especially as you study the book of Matthew, how so often, and the Gospel of John as well, that is written just to prove that Jesus is God, many times those attributes were exhibited. But what we see that Jesus did while he was on the earth was he went to the Father, he spent time with him, and he said, all I do is what the Father tells me to do. So he willingly submitted his exercise of his rights, of his power, of his capability, because what he was called to do was more important than that. And so it's said that he emptied himself. He was willing to die to himself. He was willing to say, I am not going to insist on my rights. I'm going to do what's necessary. And it's a good thing for us that he did. It goes on to say that after it says he made himself of no reputation or emptied himself, he took the form of a bondservant. Again, the word morphe. But now he took on another nature, that of being a servant that ultimately of being a man. Now this is what blows our minds theologically and in reality. Jesus Christ is completely God. Always was, always will be. But amazingly, when he incarnated, when he became flesh, when he became a person, when he was born in a manger, he also became man, completely man. He's not half man, half God. He's all God, all man. And so, two morphes, two forms. The form of God and the form of a servant. Someone who's willing to pour himself out, willing to give of himself, willing to become one of us. Amazing, radical that he could do that. But that's what he chose to do. He chose to allow himself to come in the form of, of a servant, that that is his nature as much as being God is his nature. If he wasn't God, he couldn't die for us. If he was anything less than God, his life wouldn't have been worth giving for all of ours. The fact that he is God makes his life that valuable. But if he wasn't a man, he couldn't die for us either because a man had to die for the sins of man. And so Jesus Christ fully God, fully man, came in the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Now here, it's saying that from the outside, he just looked like a guy. He just came as a common man. No one would look at him and suspect that all the fullness of God was existing in a bodily form. It just looks like a guy, an unusual guy, a powerful guy, a uh, a, a sweet and loving guy, yes, but he still just looked like a man. God became a man because he wanted to relate to us. He wanted to understand, so he was tempted in everything as we are. And from all appearances, he chose not to reveal his deity. When people started figuring out that he was God, he usually encouraged them to just be quiet about it. It wasn't, he wasn't there to go, look at me, I'm God. He was there to come and say, I'm one of you. I, I'm relating to you. I want to be with you in fellowship. And so being in this uh, appearance, ultimately he humbled himself. 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbling himself. You know, the word humble in the English is related to the word, same root as the word human or humanity. Interestingly, the Latin root of the word, hunus, is a Latin word for dirt. <laughs> you go, hey, wait a minute, I object to that. Well, it's not meant to be an insult. It's meant to make a reference to the fact that we all came from dust. We are all created. Our bodies are put together with the same chemicals that are found in dirt. Another way of saying we are human is to say we're all related. We all come from the same source. And so when Jesus humbled himself, in the same way that when we humble ourselves, you know what it really means for us to have humility, for us to humble ourselves? It's to remind ourselves, look, you're only human. You're, you're coming from the same source as everyone else that you know. It's to emphasize our connectedness. When we're prideful, I'm basically thinking I'm better than you are. I come from a better grade of dirt than you do. You know, we're, we may be relatives, but we're distant relatives. Because I don't see myself as being connected to you. That's why pride is so disgusting, because we were created to be together, to relate to each other, and Jesus showed us that by becoming one of us. In his humility, in his humanity, he reminds us, hey, you're only human. Don't expect so much from yourself. Don't expect, don't be surprised when you fail, when you fall short, you're only human. And how important it is for us to remember that. But he humbled himself not just to be a servant, not just to be a man, but he humbled himself to death. He went the distance, and not only that, the death that's on a cross, a horrible, painful death, that's what he did. And as a result, as he goes on to say, therefore, on the basis of this process, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, or those who have died already, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we've seen the entire career of Jesus. He's in the very expression of the nature of God, in the form of God. But he chooses to make himself a servant. He humbles himself to become a man. He takes human life all the way to death and the horrible death on a cross. And then he raises from the dead. He's in heaven on glory, and he's a bigger deal than he ever was before. He's been elevated, lifted up, and glorified to an extent that's greater than where he started. And this is our example as we are being told to value each other, to reach out to each other, to esteem others, to lift them up, to be the kind of people who will give of ourselves for the benefit of others. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Be thinking what he was thinking. And so now we have to look at it and go, what was he thinking? Okay, he sets the example. He humbled himself. He died on the cross, and now God has rewarded him by promoting him to this incredible level of glory. 
So what does that have to do with me? Well, there are some obvious lessons that we learn from what he has done. One of them is it's important for us to be secure enough in who we are that we don't hang on to who we are, that we don't demand our rights, that we don't believe that we deserve a certain amount of whatever it is. Because if Jesus didn't make those demands and cling to his divinity, we certainly can't cling to whatever phony image that we've convinced ourselves that we think that we are. We need to offer ourselves as well. There's also the lesson that says, if you ever want to get ahead, if you ever want to really be experience real glory, it doesn't happen the way the world says. It's actually the quickest way up is down in God's economy. Jesus said, if you really want to be great, be a servant. Give yourself for others. Jesus said, I didn't come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give my life. And so for us, if we would ever hope to achieve anything meaningful, the way to that achievement is through descendancy. The way to our achievement is by giving of ourselves, of offering ourselves to others, loving others, serving others. That's the only way we will ever achieve the glory that every one of us desires deep down inside. Because to glorify yourself, to brag about yourself, to build yourself up, always leads to a fall. Pride comes before destruction haughty spirit before a fall and Jesus showed us he is in the most incredible position that he is in partly because of exactly what he did in humbling himself and there's a lesson there for all of us but again it still begs the question how in the world can you do that I understand it in principle but what was Jesus thinking if Paul is telling me think and keep thinking about what Jesus was thinking of when he did that. So what was he thinking? Well, the Bible tells us in many places, but one of the profound places that this is expressed is over in Hebrews chapter 12. As following Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, and then as it comes to chapter 12 and it says, man, since we've had all these witnesses, lay aside all the weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Run with endurance the race that's set before us. And we're like, yeah, how do you do that? And the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, says, looking unto Jesus, looking at him. Okay, what about him? Seeing what he did? No, not just that. He said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he's sat down at the right hand of the Father. What was Jesus thinking of while he was humbling himself? while he was giving himself for us. The joy that was set before him. What's the joy that was set before him? What would he accomplish that was worth what he was going through? It was you, and it was me. He looked at that cross. He looked at that manger. He looked at that life, the, the torture and the disgrace in which he died. And he thought of you, and he said, you're worth it. You're worth it. We see over in Isaiah 53 where it's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus as he would pay the penalty for our sin by his sacrifice. And it says it pleased the Lord to crush him, to bruise him. So the Father was pleased when the Son was sacrificed. How in the world 
could that be? What was he thinking? Well, it says when he would make his soul an offering for sin, he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, for by his knowledge my righteous servant would justify many, for he would bear their iniquities. When the father looked at his son coming down to be a man, and then being treated the way he was and die and give his life, what he was thinking is he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, for by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. It says there in Isaiah 53 also, he would see his seed. He would prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. When the father looked at the son on the cross, the question, is this worth it? And he saw you, and he saw me, and he goes, this is so worth it. This is so worth it. Now, so often when we even look at this kenosis passage, when we see, oh yeah, he really humbled himself, and then, boy, he gets to be the center of attention in heaven. And, and we sometimes think that the great thing for Jesus is that now he's got a really cool outfit. He shines like the sun, and he has all these people kissing up to him, and whoa, you know, that makes it worth it, and that's what I want. But have you ever thought of what the glory of heaven really is? And we always say, and rightfully so, the glory of heaven is Jesus Christ. But why is it that he is greater because he came to earth and suffered? Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, it seems like he was doing pretty well without us. He doesn't really need us. And, but why is it that on the basis of his sacrifice, he achieves glory? Because the glory of heaven isn't just him. The glory of heaven to him is you. Because as it describes his glory, what does it say? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And do you know that ever since God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he has passionately wanted to have fellowship with people. He's wanted to live with us, to take us to be with him for eternity, to live in that kind of fellowship. And from the moment of creation, there was something that was missing because the pinnacle of his creation, people weren't able to come in and enter in and appreciate and enjoy it. And so what God would say is that you being in heaven is what really makes it special to him. More special than it was before you were ever born. More special than it was before creation. Because heaven is a richer place because you will be there. That's the way God looks at it. And that's the perspective that he wants us to have. And it's key to us enduring this life. And it's key to us living this life the way he wants us to. And it's key to us being motivated to serve each other and to give of ourselves to others. It won't always be worth it on this earth. If you live your life serving others, you may just end up losing everything. But it'll be worth it. Because if you serve him to the death, as the old song says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. But for him... He says it's worth it, not because, woohoo, I'm back in heaven. He could have stayed there. 
as much as I say it'll be worth it when we see him, the amazing truth is that he says, it'll be worth it to me when I see you. When he sees us come into heaven, he looks and he goes, it was so worth it. Everything that I suffered, everything that I did, it was worth it because you matter that much to me. Do we really understand that? And how do we transfer that into how we live? Well, God feels that way about you, but he feels that way about the person sitting next to you. He feels that way about the person that you can't stand. He feels that way about the most despicable human being in the world. He feels that way about people that you've never heard of who are halfway around the world suffering right now. See, we're all human. We have that in common. We're related. And he loves us all. And he desires for us to see other people the way he sees them. It's why as Jesus hung on the cross and watched people who were murdering him and lying about him, and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those people that have hurt you, they don't know what they're doing either. They don't realize that they're related to a family that's infinitely valuable. To serve them, it's a sacrifice and it's painful, and there are days when you'll just wonder if you're doing the right thing. See, our nature is that when someone violates us, we want to get them back. And the way I live my life, even if I'm one of the nicest people there is, I always hold back this thought in the back of my hand, head that says, there is a limit to how much I will take. There is a limit to how far I will go. And often I get that feeling, I'm just about at the limit. I'm just about to snap. I'm almost at the point where I've taken more than I can take. And I hear people say that all the time, and I hear myself feeling that way. Okay, that's about all I can take. Every great movie that's ever been made, and just about every great TV show that's ever been made, as far as I'm concerned, from a guy's perspective, is a movie about people that finally got to their limit. <laughs> and all, all you girls are going, oh no, you know. But nah, the truth is, it doesn't matter whether it's Clint Eastwood, whether it's Rambo, whether it's Steven Seagal, whether it's the Chuck Connors, the Rifleman, or whatever. It always, it's the same story. Guy's just trying to go about his own business, living his life, and finally somebody tests his patience. And they do something to him, or they hurt, or kidnap or kill his wife or do something to his children or whatever and now the real movie starts because the guy's flipping out going crazy just gunning everyone down and we go yeah that's the way I feel I, I relate to it because I just keep thinking okay vengeance at some point is going to be mine I'm going to hit my limit there was a hilarious movie you probably can't even get it anymore but Weird Al Yankovic made it and there was a movie called UHF and one of the little things in there he did all these little TV shows and he did an advertisement for a movie called Gandhi 2 and he, and he has this little guy Gandhi and he goes Gandhi's back and this time he's mad <laughs> and Gandhi's got a machine gun and he's gunning everybody down and you know deep down inside of us the Gandhi that we're trying to be is just going, okay, but pretty soon you're going to see it. Like, you know, again, the same theme, Kung Fu, Kwai Chang Kane. 
this peace-loving guy that beats people up every week, you know, or whatever. It's, we've heard the story. Of, that's an old reference. Most of you don't remember it. But we've heard the story a lot, and we live it. But Jesus says, here's how it works. Revenge, vengeance, meeting your limit. Here's your limit, death. If it kills you, I will not take vengeance. I will not say, I've had it. I've taken too much. I've endured too much. I'm never going to Rambo out. I'm never going to just flip out like Billy Jack beating up the drunks or whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live that way. Because Jesus showed me, why am I not going to live that way? Because those people are worth it. Those people who are hurting me are worth it for me to be understanding, for me to give an example to them, to love them, to extend grace toward them. They're worth it. Those people who are lost are worth finding. Those people who are hurting are are worth healing. Those people who are in need are worth me serving them because God says they are. Because he sees something that I don't see. Most of the time when we do something for people, we don't get to see the immediate results. And I know as you share your faith with people, or for me as I teach the Bible, I don't, it, it, when people come up and go, well, this morning changed my life. I'm like, yeah, right, you know, you told me that last week. But <laughs> one of the joys of being, getting old is that people start to come back and, and say that, you know, I've had people that I've never met say, you know, you've never met me, but you spoke at such and such a place, and, and I committed my life to the Lord that day, and it's never been the same. And here's all that God's been doing in my life, and I feel like, you know, if I had known that one person was going to accept Jesus Christ and be in heaven for eternity that day, how it would have affected my attitude in going to share about him. And I, you know, there are times I had a funny thing years ago. Um, a, a good friend of mine, her niece was getting married. She'd been living with this guy for a long time. They had several kids, and they planned this big wedding. And then the pastor backed out at the last minute because he found out they were living together or something. And so, so then it was like, you know, hey, Dave, can you do this wedding? No premarital counseling. I never met them before or anything. And I felt like, you know, everything they taught me at seminary is that, no, you know, you need this long counseling and do this and don't ever marry non-Christians and blah, blah, blah. But it was like, this is my friend. And frankly, I kind of compromised, I felt. And I just said, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. I'm just, sure, I'll do it. I'll go through the script. I'll do a civil ceremony. And then I started thinking, I'm definitely going to preach the gospel. That's one thing I'll do for sure. And I always looked back on it. I even used it as an example sometimes when I was counseling other pastors of, you know, not compromising, and here's what I did, and I felt bad for it for all these years. And, and um, I, I, I did. I felt guilty for it until a f- couple of years ago when the, this couple came to our church, and they introduced themselves to me, and they gave me a little note and thanking me and said, it's been 10 years since you married us. And they said, when you did our wedding, we didn't even know what it was to be a Christian. But on our honeymoon, we popped in the video, and we started watching it, and we heard what you were saying. As you explained how we could come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there on our honeymoon, we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, and we've been walking with him ever since. And we're involved in this church. We're teaching Sunday school. and we're, I'm like... Man, why didn't you tell me uh, 10 years ago? I'd be beating myself up over guilt. 
But was it worth it? You bet, after you see the whole story. Was it worth doing something that you kind of wondered, I don't know if this is a good idea or not? It, it was to me, and it certainly was to them. And there are so many things in our lives that when we're in the middle of it, we're questioning, and we're asking ourselves, do I really want to give myself for this? Do I really want to serve in this way? I guarantee if you've ever taught Sunday school or worked in the nursery, you've asked yourself, is this really worth it? <laughs> you betcha. You bet it's worth it. Because it's not if this is worth it, it's if they are worth it. Every time you pack a little shoebox for some little kid in Mexico who probably won't have any other Christmas presents this year except this little shoebox full of toys that you give them, that you pack in love as you're praying for the child who's going to have that and it means so much to them, they're worth it. It's so worth it. It's shame on any of us if we flake and don't participate in a little way like that. Given your lunch hour at Walmart in order to bless some kids... Jesus Christ says, those kids are so worth it, I died for them. And in so many ways, in so many areas of our lives, that becomes the question. And that's why Paul says, look at this picture of Jesus, who didn't hang on to his divine credentials, but he made himself human. And he submitted himself as a servant, and he gave his life, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And then he looked back and goes, I'd do it all over again because you are worth it. That's his perspective. Again, what's the glory of heaven? It's that we'll be there. It's every tongue that confesses. It's every knee that bows. It's that fellowship that we are enjoying together. And that's what we have to understand. And if we don't understand it, we will live our lives selfishly and then our lives will be wasted. What a tragedy to live your life for yourself and to end up being all alone. What a sad thing to not see the value that is all around you. To not see, you know, as, you know, there are some, you know, undocumented aliens that walk across our parking lot all day long because it's a shortcut between this neighborhood over here and the, and the market. And you could come here any time of day and you'll see people walking across our parking lot. And on the one hand, you know, maybe we ought to put a fence around it because those people, and what are they going to do? On the other hand, it's like, how about going out of your way and saying, hi, God bless you. Have a great day. Or how about just stopping and praying for that person and what they're going through and what their life is like? Yeah, but, I mean, that might take some time. And it could even involve some risk. I could go over and say, God bless you, and they could stab me and rob me. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you know what? be worth it. It would be worth it. Because that's the heart of God. He looks at people who need him and he goes, I'll die for you because you're worth it. And I want to be one of you. And so he is fully God and fully man and will be for all of eternity. When we see Jesus, he'll still be a man. He'll still say, hey, we're related. It's good to see you. And we can't see the glory that's in sharing with each other when we so often our image of loving God is we try to sort of 
picture him as, as much of like a person as we can. And we think, and so often our praise songs are filled with these images of, oh God, let me snuggle up to you. Let me feel the, your breath on my neck and whatever. And it's like, oh, you know, and, and the women are all, oh, that's so sweet. And the men are like, eh, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> but you know what he says? He goes, you know what? Don't snuggle up with me. Why don't you snuggle up with some people? Because that's what I'm telling you. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. If you love me, you'll love each other. I've called us to be together. I've died so that could happen. Oh, the heart of God, it's just so different than our silly little limited existence. When you feel glimpses of heaven in this life, times when all of a sudden you meet someone and there's something there, there's a spark before reality sets in. And it's like, whoa, I didn't know I could ever feel this way about someone. Or sometimes even more radically, when that first child is born. And it's like this miracle. It's nothing's ever touched me quite like having my children born and holding them and seeing this. You ever wonder why this is? It's because God has created us to be connected. And anywhere we see that connection, we feel that spark of worth, that spark of heaven, if you will, that spark of glory. And if we don't understand that and start to think like that, service will be a burden. People will be an inconvenience. We will weary very quickly of everything that we have to go through. And we're just waiting for that Rambo moment when we're going to let them have it. When that's it, I've had it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Keep on thinking what he was thinking. And the thought of Jesus as he became a man, as he grew up, as he gave his life, as he died for you, and as he is now on his throne in heaven, his thought about you is that you're so worth it. And he goes, would you be thinking that with me? If so, I wouldn't have to keep reminding you constantly to serve others. I wouldn't have to beg you to, to give. I wouldn't have to ask you to go out of your way to volunteer for ministry or whatever. Now, if you realized how worth it it is to be a servant, you, like Jesus, would go, you know what? I'm going to empty myself. I'm going to make myself of no reputation. I want to connect desperately with any people that he gives us to minister to. I doubt if you've ever had any ministry that you've ever done or any difficulty that you've ever gone through in your life where at one point or another you didn't ask yourself, is this worth it? And it's a smart question to ask. But the answer is plain. Because if it was worth it to him as the God of the universe worth it to us. You are worth it to him. He was thinking of you when he emptied himself. Let's pray. God, it just totally blows our minds to think that heaven will be better than ever because we are there. To see you having that heart for us is just amazing. But God, as you were going through what you went through and you were thinking, 
they were worth it, they're worth it, they're worth it. May we serve your people, may you serve each other, may we serve those who don't know you and share with them like we understand that they're worth it. Lord, help us to live our lives as your servants so that one day as we enjoy your glory, we can hug each other, celebrate around the throne of God and say, oh, this is a great place to be and this is what we were working for and this is what we always wanted, just to be together. Lord, there are people here today who are really alone. Some of them are alone because they don't like being around others. They're burned out and they've decided it's not worth it. Lord, others are alone because they didn't know they didn't have to be. So, Lord, please, those thoughts that you had, place them within our minds so that we can share your heart and really enjoy being together, really enjoy being a part of humanity. Remind us that we're only human, but that we are all human and that we can all share in this life, in your suffering, and in your glory that will be revealed. Thanks for giving us the chance to share with you in serving. In Jesus' name, amen.